3: Imagine walking into a surf shop and all you see is surfboards everywhere you look. On the floor, on the racks, on the walls, in the rafters, on the ceiling, surfboards. There is no slick merchandising in this surf shop. No bikini section, no UGG boots. No snowboards, just surfboards. An interactive museum with a timeline of surf culture rooted solely in the surfboard. And an on-site docent slash proprietor. A walking, talking, surfing encyclopedia at your beck and call. San Diego's Eric Bird Huffman. I haven't really known this man for very long, maybe 15 years, which is strange as we both grew up surfing in San Diego County and have decades of surfing experience between us. We've become good friends, a friendship I believe based as much or more in our faith as in our love of surfboards. The Boardroom Podcast interview with San Diego's Eric Bird Huffman. Let us begin. bird huffman here on the boardroom show podcast and welcome bird it's good to see you buddy always good to be seen scott first things first okay i know you're the proprietor of
2: the bird surf shed yeah that and uh the shed ob the shed ob yeah we've got a couple locations to serve you
3: that's what i was going to ask you about it's called the shed ob
2: yeah different name but same same theory behind it you know wanted to change the name up a bit just because every town should have a shed <laughs> so it doesn't have to be bird surf shed it could be arcade you know arcadia surf shed or any shed so the yeah. theory behind the uh you know ob shed is it's just a shed in ob we happen to run it the same way and we follow the same philosophy that um we've developed here at, at bird surf shed but the concept is to have a you know basically a real surf shop, uh, a meeting place for everybody, and it's, it's a little different than most people's business plan.
3: Yeah, it's unique. I'm glad you brought that up. That's fascinating, right? You you have a concept of a meeting place, which probably comes from something in your childhood.
2: Yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, to get into surf shops in the uh, industry, if you want to call it. It wasn't an industry then. I was lucky enough to be able to work at Select Surf Shop, which was. If you're cool, that was the dominant surf shop in San Diego at that time. There were very few, maybe three or four. Why was select cooler than the other ones? Oh, uh, well, it was cooler because I got to the hang there, <laughs> n- number one. <laughs> you but, made it cooler. <laughs> yeah, no, but the, the guy that ran it, Phil Casanola, was oh, a, a okay. legendary guy yeah. and still is a legendary guy. Yeah. Um, and it was the, the spot where everybody who was anybody of real notoriety would stop in right so his connections were deep you know working with castor working with tony channon working with yancey spencer from the east coast i mean he worked with everybody and anybody who came through be it bk they'd always kind of stop by there i see whereas other shops were already at that time phil's why the select surf shop was so cool is because phil had connections through the board building industry absolutely yeah correct he had uh, had owned olympic surfboards right and um you know, he carried all the major brands you know and he'd just been in it since almost day one he sold mitch his first surfboard oh what a, and everybody what knows mitch has been around forever that's great so uh, yeah i started working there when i was like 12 okay. or hanging i should say how did you get the name bird the nickname bird oh uh, that's really my brother my older brother rex um that was really his name uh for years and years um he had a prominent nose and he fell off the monkey bars at school and uh, broke his nose even more, so they called him beak, and then from beak it went to bird, and then really the bird is just a terminology that he would just use instead of calling you like dude or bro, he would just call people bird. So one thing led to another, and he was called bird, and I was little bird, Um, then I was the anti-bird, and now the kind of bird thing is just kind of of landed in my lap.
3: Yeah, at some point like 30 years ago, he was no longer beak or bird or whatever, and you were bird, and he was just racks.
2: Yeah, for the most part. You know, I mean, it depends upon how deep your history goes with the Huffman family. You know, yeah. I mean, he's he is and always will be the the real bird if you want to get to it. Oh, I didn't know that. But, That's um, interesting. Yeah, but um, I'm just uh, second in command. I'm his <laughs> wingman. Wing wow, no pun intended. No, not at all.
3: <laughs> well, let's get into some of your early history bird um when did you start surfing
2: i almost can't remember probably about uh age of five again you know i mean that's when i recollect riding styrofoam surfboards you know and actually going in and catching waves and standing up on the old styrofoam boards by then um my my brother's uh older brother mark who's four years older than me and rex who's two years older than me they were already riding like wooden pipo belly boards And they were belly boarding and e boarding on those. So um, that's my earliest recollection. And then I just followed suit, hand-me-downs, whatever was passed down from one brother to another um, would be what I would end up getting. And then consequently, I'd pass it down to my younger brother. And we all started out knee boarding four
3: huffman brothers yeah
2: four huffman brothers five sisters
3: holy mackerel yeah your parents catholic
2: uh my mom is yeah so i guess it would have been maybe like 18 of us if my dad was catholic so we, we split it at nine
3: quite a clan
2: yeah it was fantastic it really really was i'm blessed all of them are still alive and kicking and uh lost my dad my mom's still around she's 91 and um yeah we're tight we're a pretty tight family I just met your mother. She's wonderful. She's still cruising and driving at 91. Did you know I backed her out of the driveway here at your surf shop, and
3: she rolled down her window and grabbed my hand and put it on her forehead. It felt like I was being blessed by the Pope or something. It was wonderful.
2: Yeah, she's deeply spiritual. Um, She always has been, but especially in the last 40 years. So her connection uh, with the higher power is is you can feel it in her hands. Certain people have that energy, and uh, she exudes that, and, and she loves to share it. Yeah. So yeah, she's a wonder, she's a wonder woman.
3: Yes, I feel really kind of made my day actually. Yeah. Um life as a teenage surfer Wait, let me back up. You surfed on this foamy. Where were you surfing on this styrofoam surfboard? Um, where were you riding these hand-me-downs from your brothers? Where was your go-to beach as like a 6-, 710 year old kid?
2: Pacific Beach uh, was one we'd go to somewhat often. Um, I grew up inland, Mission Hills, mm-hmm. which in those days was like you know, off-limits if you were a surfer. The old adage, no life east of I-5 definitely yeah. fell into play and then ocean beach was the closest shop or this closest beach so I ended up surfing there the most once I got to the age where I could ride a bike before I could ride a bike or get to a beach I'd go wherever you know my mom would take us and right. she was in the La Jolla areas you know mostly she liked La Jolla Cove and stuff but the surf was too rough so if we wanted to surf she'd you know take us to PB for little go outs.
3: Okay so Anywhere from Tourmaline
2: down to the pier and Pacific Beach were
3: sort of, sort south of, side er, of the, pier. the south side of the pier, yeah. your earliest sort of sort of where you got your footing, so yeah. to speak, as a as a young surfer.
2: Absolutely. And as a teenage surfer, um, where did you go to high school? I went to high school at university, uni high, they called it. It was uh, formerly an all boys school, but it went co-ed about two years, three years before I attended high school there.
3: Yeah, Uni is in San Diego. is yeah. a, it's a parochial. Well, it was a Catholic school, right? Catholic
2: high school, correct?
3: Yeah, private Catholic high school. Yeah,
2: still around. They cathedral, changed the name. Right. It's yeah, Cathedral it's now. Cathedral Catholic. Yeah, my youngest daughter just graduated from there last year. Wow. Yeah. Good for so, you. We, we've got a long running. Got a lot history. of
3: Dons in the Huffman. A lot hat. of Dons in the. Did Huffman your brothers family. and
2: sisters go to all Uni? All of them. Yeah, all eight of them. Right. Uh, with the exception of one who, uh, she has uh, physical disabilities that prevents her from schooling. But um, yeah, all the rest of them. My oldest sister went to OLP uh-huh. because that was a Catholic woman's yeah. or girls' school. Our Lady and of Peace. That was right? it. Our Lady of Peace. Yeah. So the Catholic, you know, tradition runs deep in my family. We all went to the same uh, grade school, uh, St. Charles, over in Point Loma. Uh-huh. Even though we lived in Mission Hills, we right. liked that parish better, so we went there. And um, is that
3: where the K through twelve? Yep. schooling wise, was was
2: No that would be K through uh, eighth grade, through kindergarten to eight. eighth, and then you'd jump right into uh, yeah, you th- jump right into the high school. Okay.: So and, that's probably uh, that's why it.
3: you went to school in Point Loma, right? is because that's where the Catholic school is K through 8. Maybe? Yeah, there was,
2: one, there was one up the street, uh, closest to us, really St. Vincent's, huh. um, which is closer. It's still there in operation, as is St. Charles. My he, kids all went to St. Charles but um i'm not I'm not quite sure, really, I should have asked my mom when she was here, yeah. what kind of sent us over there? I think she probably liked the community yeah. it's still a pretty solid community, and I believe she had a lot of friends uh from the point loma point Loma area more so than um the local mission hills area
3: yeah, and so, as a teenage surfer um let's fast forward a little bit um, we've got a lot of ground to cover, frankly, yep you're a teenager you let's say you're you're maybe about to drive or you're driving age. What's it like being a teenage surfer? And I'm going to say, I'm going to guess it was like 75, something like that. When did you, when were you a teenager? What were your years?
2: Well, I graduated high school in 75. Yeah. So, um, you know, my my formative years, my teenage, my early years, um, pre-driving, I, I surfed the cliffs a lot. You okay. know, I had graduated from the beaches as quickly as I could And by uh, 11 or 12, I was surfing down the cliffs. And
3: why do you think the cliffs? Did it have to do with your schooling there, that you had friends that were – you grew up with K-8 through that lived in the Point Loma area, and so you naturally moved to the cliffs? Or was it more your older brothers were like, dude – Come down to the cliffs, the cliffs are where it's
2: at. Uh, no, my older brothers, especially my older brother Rex, he, you know, he would boycott me for years and years. He, you know, he wouldn't let me go surf anywhere he was at. Right. But the proximity close to Ocean Beach and the friends right. and, and the quality of waves, you know, the first time I I got off, off the beach and onto a reef, that was done. The beaches were like, you know, secondary at, at best. Yeah. And I didn't get a chance to gravitate over to La Jolla until I was like 12 or 13 when I started working at Select, because Phil, who owned Select, was a neighbor. He was a block away. So if I could get to Select, then I could get a ride home every night when he came home. So after school, whatever way I could, I'd go to to PB, hang at the shop, and then from there I would graduate up and surf La Jolla Reeves, PB Point, and then um, weekends or whatever, then I'd gravitate more towards Ocean Beach, So wherever I landed, you know, I ended up surfing whatever area I was in. Right. But my older brothers, um, especially Mark being the oldest, he's a really easygoing guy. And um, I was some way way able to kind of drift from camp to camp. You know, I didn't feel the animosity that was so uh, ever-present. If I was in La Jolla, people thought I was from Point Loma, and they kind of gave me a hall pass. If I was in Point Loma, people thought I was from La Jolla, and they kind of let me slide. Nobody ever realized I was an inland goon. So I kind of got lucky.
3: In a way, it was a blessing that you had this Mission Hills situation because you kind of got the best of both worlds. Yeah. And all of a sudden now you've got your fingers in both camps and you're more or less like, you know, I'll use the word accepted.
2: Yeah, that's a good term. You know, I mean, I was put up with and then accepted across the board at all areas and then hanging at select. Um, Then that bridges the gap. You know, when you, you hang in a good surf shop or you work at a good surf shop and you're you uh, you have access to the best of the best, then, yeah, you have a foot in all camps. Yeah. So even at that young age, you know, I was able to, to you know, delve with guys 10 years older than me that were, you know, the currents and the legends of the time. Yeah. So I got a, a pretty heavy and thorough uh, indoctrination.
3: Who were some of those guys um, in that era, say, from 73 to 79? I'm thinking... Wow! Like Gary Keating,
2: yeah. I mean, he was he was the PB guy. So you had two camps basically in Pacific wow. Beach. You had the Gordon Smith camp, and they were the big store, you know. And they were GNS; they were huge, right? Yeah. So they had the Keatings. They had the Tim Lynches. You know, they had the the junior ropers. You know, and I mean, they had that camp. Right. And then we had the the PB Toads, which was the upper echelons of guys that rode casters they rode challengers they rode fries eventually when fries uh, split from the gns camp so to speak and there was a couple of guys that would cross bridges you know a lot yeah. of guys rode matrixes so we were like the the opposite they were the, the clean and cut you know kind of guys and and we were the pretty much rough around the edges we're going to throw rocks at you kind of guys Okay. no cords no no anything you know yeah. it was it was tough it was yeah. a it was a rough group of people yeah probably even rougher than the the group down at the cliffs
3: yeah yeah, that's interesting, you know, and it kind of brings me to some of this, some of the stuff I wanted to talk about, which is San Diego and Point Loma specifically, at least in my mind, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but Point Loma always been known as a localized region, you know, I mean, magazines would print photographs of, of, you know, this, the signs that said, you know, locals only or whatever, you know, like, so there was Point Loma has a uh, reputation as being a localized area at least back in the day
2: yeah there's a good reason for that in fact i just uh spoke at point loma nazarene college um last uh, friday in regards to that and why that is so and why that is so is because um point loma is such a family community still whereas pacific beach has gotten all broken up it's a, you know, more of a college town more apartments mission beach is nothing but students and so forth La Jolla is mostly foreigners right now. So it's lost a lot of its uh, a lot of its personality family wise. But Point Loma is like second, third, fourth generation. And it's a steady, steady population. And yeah, there's much, much more of a family community there to this day.
3: Now, that's a fascinating insight. Actually, I'd never thought of the family, um, you know, aspect to that. I always thought that generally where there's cliffs, if you look at the California coastline, where there's cliffs, there seems to be a sense of community, which you could say is family, which I think it is. Absolutely. A deeper sense of community. And then you go to flat beach break areas like, say, Huntington or parts of Orange County or, or, um, you know, wherever. And for whatever reason, there's not the top topography that you have at a place with uh, – or the topography is flat, I should say. it's It's, yeah. it's a riverbed as opposed to, like – you know sandstone cliff structure which for whatever reason because you have to get up and down the cliff and because you there it's not as easy to access it I think part of that plays into as well as the family aspect but I'm, what are your thoughts on just the topography of the region being why it's sort of on lockdown
2: no that's a very true fact at the time when I was younger um, you know it was hard to get down those cliffs it's yeah. hard again now because of all the recent erosion but you had to go out of your way you know and obviously carrying bigger boards down and so forth why would you want to go surf the cliffs when you could jump out at the beach you know and carry that 30 pounder right out of the parking lot but you had to work harder you had to know the tides um, it's more dangerous you have rocky bottoms stronger currents yeah you have much better surf overall but for your average guy, um, even then, I don't think it was so much about quality of surf as much as it was just being part of that surf scene.
3: And the, and sort of the the political economic structure of the families down there, and, and help me out with this, but I'm going to suggest to you that you had a lot of um, fishermen, a lot of like Portuguese fishermen that were working out of the tuna canneries in San Diego Harbor that lived right there in Point Loma. And there was a... I sense a real blue-collar sort of rough and tumble um, attitude that just comes from being a man, a salt of the sea, so to speak.
2: Yeah, point well taken there, because that's exactly what it was. You know, you have Barissimos, the Correas, the Zalesis; the names go on and on. They are the ones who founded. My son-in-law's uh, grandfather is one of the guys that founded the um, the tuna fleet. You know, and and those guys, man, are burly. Like you said, they've grown up around the ocean. They're not afraid of the hard work. The families reflected by that, even though they were well-to-do, they worked hard for their money and they didn't, they didn't let it go loosely. And their kids, for the most part, weren't brought up with that kind of entitlement. You know, we work hard, you're going to work hard. And again, it was a tight family community, a large family. Those yeah. those guys, the, you know, they were deep, strong, structured family upbring- upbringings there. And then so everybody around generally... Um, had that same kind of vibe, you know. A community is going to take on its, its, uh, its, you know, its essence by the people in the community. Yeah. So if you've got that working man ideal, then that's generally what you're going to find. And thank God that's never left uh, Point Loma to this day. I live there, yeah. so I mean, if ever it's just as strong now as it was when I was a kid.
3: But there is a there is sort of because I struggle with this, and and let me just suggest to you that you know that I'm a Christian. I know that you're a Christian. I've done some embarrassing things, some very self-centered, um, hateful things oh, in boy. and out of the water around, you know, when I was, you know, I mean, maybe even as far as 25 years ago, I mean, not that long ago when I was an adult, I did
2: some bad things Yep. and
3: things that I'm not proud of. And, um, and I'm assuming bird that you have too. Oh, <laughs> and so, whatever,
2: you, whatever you've done, I've probably done worse. How do um. you
3: reconcile this concept of of localism and 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 kind of hate with your Christianity
2: well it's it's a lot easier for me to wrap my my mind around it now because as I've gotten older I've gotten wiser and and my walk with God has gotten straighter and clearer so every day it's it's a blessing to me and I just ask forgiveness like I need to do constantly I still flare up I mean I, I if I see somebody who I offended and I'll get people that will come up to me Hey, you, you were asked to me 25 years ago. I go, oh, yeah, I, I probably was, you know, I mean because I was. Yeah. And I'm I'm really sorry if I was. Um by the same token, um in defense of that, uh there's still days now that I have to educate people. I don't get abrupt, abrupt about it and I I Get calmly involved with the situation that if somebody's dangerous in the water, it's up to me as an elder statesman, 61 years of age. I'm usually the oldest guy out where I surf, to tell people that, you know, there's rights and wrongs, and, um, you know, you're stepping over the bounds. But it's how you do it. Um, My days of just being an ass for being an ass are probably about 99% gone. I can still be a jerk at times, but for the most part, um, I'd rather be more of a teacher. Yeah. than a destructor right i've had those years and i i regret them so deeply. through
3: your growth with with god you've you've we you and i both have more or less spiritually matured yeah or, or at least are trying to I, I, yeah trying. exactly Perfect. no progress
2: well, well then you know i've got the business aspect of it as well so now after having worked at surf shops for so many years and I have a responsibility to not only my community, my family, my business, but also the surfing to to try to bring out what's best in surfing and try to explain it to whoever wants to listen. That's one of the main purposes of the shed anyways is educational. You know, again, the whole shop concept, as we mentioned earlier, is is way different than most people's business plans. It's not even a business plan. It's a it's a. For me, a spiritual plan. It's a chance to give back for everything that was given to me and still make a living.
3: Yeah. It's, it's, it could be suggested that it's a community endeavor. I mean, it's like the library for surfers, really. It's like you go there to yeah. learn, to be educated, to pick up a book, in this case, to pick up a board and uh, go out and live that life. Yeah,
2: it's very much so. That's one of my main, um, my, my main goals here is because I learn every day from different people that come in every day. I learned something, and I, I try to remember all that, and then I tried just to do as you say. Most people can walk in here, pull a board off the rack. They want to ride a quad fish. Here, I'll pull one of mine off the rack. You know, you want to ride this old talkie I have, go ahead. You want to ride a fry, whatever. You want to talk about those guys. You want to hear the the real truth behind David Nueva's board getting hung up on OB Pier, things of that sort. Um, then I can supply that for people. I'm not into the hearsay. I really, really don't like the he said, she said. So unless I can get it directly from the horse's mouth or somebody like a Joe Roper or a Hank Warner or somebody who I have utmost trust in it, um, I'll I'll, I'll decline from really speaking about that in any depth. I might give an opinion, but I'm not going to talk about it unless I'm darn well sure that, that this is the facts.
3: Let me ask you this.
2: misinformation I hate misinformation
3: um, we were we were kind of on the fringes of talking about localism a little bit and, yeah um, and there was a you told me a funny story I guess my question to you is do you ever look back on some of the stuff you did and just are embarrassed about it you're not proud of it it's not like a thing where you're trying to to like gain borough capital with the guy down in the surfboard aisle and tell him a story about how badass we were um is there um for instance and I'll, you you told me a funny story which i not maybe funny but it, very interesting to me which was there was sort of an unwritten code at the cliffs that when you walked down to the cliffs if you saw somebody you knew you didn't even acknowledge them you just kinda of walked past him. You definitely didn't talk to him. You might have given him a nod. You didn't ask him how the ways were. The whole idea was just to kind of create this real kind of like smug, almost kind of dark, negative attitude around it all.
2: Is can you comment on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, you know, I mean it was it was kind of an exclusivity type of thing, you know? I mean you would you would recognize the people that you saw you got to remember, I was an outsider because I did not grow up in Point Loma, even though I spent considerable amount of my time there and I knew everybody who was anybody for various reasons. Right. I'm not a local at the Cliffs. I'm not yeah. a local in La Jolla. I'm a Mission Hills local. Right. So despite what people might think or hear, whatever. But in in those days, it was a sense of, of solitude of of the break itself that, you know, you really— you were just digging the you know on the, the environment down there, yeah, and you know having conversations i mean you didn 't have a whole lot to talk to with somebody you 're sure not going to tell them how good the ways were, and you 're sure not going to talk to them about your surfboard because chances are you know what you were riding was made in your own garage or made by your best buddy, and you didn 't have anything that was that much in common with somebody that you wanted to to socialize about, maybe at a party you 'd have a, more of a conversation right. but the surf experience down there in particular was. It was um, very solitary. Yeah. You know, people like that. They they did not like uh, to, to pump it up, hype it up in any way, shape, or form. Right. You never told somebody that you surfed the cliffs. Right. You know, I mean, if anything, you know, if you didn't surf OB, I would I, I surf somewhere else, or yeah. maybe Luda, I surfed downstream, or right. you know, some little side comment right. that would indicate that you had a. a a further reach than right. of certain other people. Do you sense that that's
3: kind of ridiculous though? Like it, it, as you look back on it, let me ask you this. Do you think it's born from scarcity from the fear that there's not going to be enough for me and for you? And because of that fear, we're going to put it on sort of a lockdown or is there a different theme that runs through this? Why do you think we, why couldn't we go down and high five each other and be like, yeah, I got some great waves as ridiculous as that sounds even saying it into the microphone right now. I'm just wondering, what, what was this born out of?
2: Uh, ignorance. A lot of it was ignorance, you know, intolerance of, of people. And even though it's one of the most diverse areas for board design and for surf style and so forth, um, people were clicky and uh, they like to travel in their tight little, little circle. So um, coming from different camps, so to speak, I was not so that way. I mean, I was in so many different camps in one way or another that my attitude was different. But wherever I went, I I respected deeply what that attitude was from spot to spot, area to area. But, uh, yeah, there was that idea that you had more than somebody else, that it was sacred property that you are on, the ways you were surfing. You know, really, it was like the ranch. Yeah. I mean, it, it still is much that way in terms of how the ways are. The ways haven't changed. The people have. Yeah. But, I mean, the place is so magical to this day um, that, yeah, you just, you know, you, you were very protective of it. Yeah. And if you didn't know somebody, well, they don't have a right to be here. Yeah. And that's just, you know, the, the common flaw in man of, of being selfish. Yeah. So, I guess we, you could say that, you know, most of us were very selfish.
3: Yeah. Myself included.
2: Yep. Yeah, most of us, yeah. I mean, and I'm just exploring it, you know. Bitter, bitter, uh, bitter mistakes. I can remember moments that, you know, I if I think hard about it, I'll start crying. You know, seriously. On on how could I have been such an idiot? You know, I mean, I'm going to Catholic school, man. I've got God in my life. Yeah. But that doesn't mean much if you don't no. really have God in your life. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's taken me years to, to get over that, and uh, um, yeah, there were some dark times. I'm going to throw some names at you. Just, just give me your thoughts on these names, if you would. Pat Cosgrove. Legend. Point Loma legend. Still around. Shaped a board out of my shaping room a while back. Tough guy. Point Loma heavy.
3: Yeah. I've I've met him once. I've heard that he was a really great surfer. One of the best goofy foots to come out of the Cliffs area.
2: Yeah. There were quite a few... You know, surfers that came out of that way, but because of their their beliefs or whatnot, you know, you don't hear a whole lot out of them. People don't know that uh, Terry Martin came out of Point Loma. Most people don't know that he came out of you know Point Loma, and the Martin family is a big Point Loma I didn't name. Know that I did not. Yeah, know. that's where he's out of the cliffs, and the people that influenced him um, are people like Kazi and other other guys that were you know older than he was. So
3: In his foundation is the, the there. Cliffs, because there was this sort of lockdown, so to speak, a, around the cliffs, a lot of guys, as you mentioned, didn't really get any notoriety. Not that they were seeking it. They were not seeking it. Um, but board design, I mean, there was incredible board design going on there. But it was all very much like hush hush. And at some point, is the, is it the case that at some point a lot of those guys are like, hey, waving their hands going, hey, don't you guys forgot all about us, you know?
2: No, to this day, they don't care. Yeah. You know, I mean, they really, really don't. That's another thing that's so interesting about it still. You know, Stevie List wouldn't care about, you know, taking claim for a fish or whatever. Everything that's come up, the fish movie and other things that have happened have only happened because other people have basically almost forced it out. You know, Bunker working with the boys on the edge boards. You know, John Riddle, a new break kid, working on the styles and the boards that he had. All those influential people, Ian Osborne. I mean, the list goes on forever. The Lockwood brothers, you know, Skip spending all the time down there developing eggs and other shapes. Um, it was all done on a purely personal basis, and much like the waves down there themselves people didn't really want to share it there was nobody's going to share building a fish with you yeah. you know there was good guys that built fishes out of the sunset cliffs area larry duff and you know honderboards and a bunch of different guys but it wasn't like they went to stevie and said hey stevie what's up right. you know they they emulated and then they um they innovated right so yeah it was very very uh very much a hotbed of design. Yeah. Not so much anymore. It's homogenized now. To a certain extent, they're still great shapers. Yeah. But um, I don't see anybody breaking new grounds out of there anymore. What about um, Brandon Hayes? Well, Brandon Hayes was like the the wizard, kind of a wonder kid. Um, really one of the, the younger guys um, at that stage. But he did stuff. He surfed ways that nobody had ever seen. He'll jump in. He'll take a running run down the beach jump on his surfboard into the white water and catch a wave and then pump that wave down the beach. Yeah. You know, he was a rubber man before Bertelman was, you know, even talked about. Just a really gifted surfer in smaller waves. Yeah. And um, there was Jimmy Farrow was right there with him. All these little areas had their little packs. Each little group had their, you know, three to five central players that were, uh, you know, that would keep that, that pack in its own limelight.
3: Who's the, who's the most underrated surfer from San Diego? Not necessarily the Cliffs, but the whole, all of San Diego area, underrated. Um, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot and asking your memory bank to
2: kind of kick into overdrive here. Oh, pro- oh man, that's a lot. But, uh, you know, How Henry. How Hen- Uh Yeah, well, Menzi for real, you know what I mean? But he had his shot in, in due to personal situations. Um, He basically was his own worst enemy, much like David Eggers. You know, Mm -hmm. those guys had notoriety. There's no doubt they had the ability. But I think of guys like Henry Hunt, who's just uh, an absolutely brilliant La Jolla surfer that has gotten more barrels and and surfs harder than anybody I know and is the least known. If you're anything to do with La Jolla or San Diego in general tightly, you'll know who he is. But on the other side of it, not a word out of him. and. It's like how many great guitar players are you know, there. There
3: are quite a few guys yeah. coming through my brain right now, too. Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, it, you start thinking, really, of the people you know who surf the best. Oftentimes, you know, there's Brew Briggs. People Brew. know who Brew Briggs is. Yeah, Brew. But to me, as, as great as Chris O'Rourke was, and he was fantastic, Brew will always be the best surfer to me. Yeah. Tom Ortner. I mean, all these other guys. Um, Brolowski, maybe. Yeah, Burlowski, the whole family, you yeah. know. Kyle Bakken. uh andy tyler you know marty fitch all these guys were were rising stars or had moments um but they either chose to walk away from it uh got in the drugs or just realized that they were surfing for surfing's sake and they didn't need any of that johnny sandera justin poston his dad craig poston you know yeah it's an endless list
3: there is isn't there what about i mentioned gary keating earlier in our talk um Did you know Gary very well? I know there was sort of a dark side to him. Obviously, he committed suicide and and sort of at the height of his, at least his surfing prowess.
2: Yeah, I won't talk too much about Gary and that part of it. Um, I did have a relationship with him because uh, of my relationship with the GNS guys and uh, through Skip and things before he tragically uh, chose to end his life. Um, You know, you can be a, a brilliant person on one side and then the other side you have that darkness and depression is, is evil and and deadly. And, um, it wasn't addressed at that time. And it should have been, people should have looked deeper, but you can say the same thing now about, about that. You know, you really have to look at people and and people that you love and check them out. Don't take them at face value, you know, go a little bit deeper than their ability as a surfer or a singer or a rock star. Look Look at them as the person that they are. And, um, and try to understand them that way because there's a lot of lost souls out there. Yeah. And he was he was lost at the yeah. end. Yeah. Very dark.
3: Well put. Yeah. Um shifting gears just a little bit here. In nineteen fifty nine at La Jolla Cove there was a great white shark attack. There was a diver there that was it's been told the lore is that he was swallowed whole by a great white shark for whatever that's worth now fast forward to 2008 and bird as you know in solana beach there was another great white fatal shark attack um then just last year at san onofre which is in san diego county a woman barely escaped with her life and lost her leg to a great white shark and of course in encinitas last week this 13 year old boy has, named keen has barely escaped with his life and it's presumed and has not yet been determined that it was a great white shark attack. Um, I guess my question to you is: Have you ever seen a shark in San Diego?
2: Oh, yeah. I've I've got two shark stories from Sunset Cliffs. Um, one in particular that uh, are would probably be unbelievable um, to anybody that's listening now. They, Let's they hear would it. think they would think I was just telling the tale. I was surfing downstream one day. It was kind of a a windy or bumpy day, and I had a friend that was visiting from uh, uh, the East Coast. So there was just the two of us, kind of big, kind of unruly, and one younger kid on the inside. And um, we were going through a set, and off to my right, maybe maybe 40 yards, maybe, um, I saw a great white paralleling the beach, you know, running sideways to the beach. And uh, we were duck diving through a wave, and... Uh, that's a very quick period of time, but, um, I came up and, you know, watched where it was traveling and it was heading North. We didn't go in. I didn't think anything more than, man, was that what I saw really what I saw? And then the guy I was surfing with said, what was that? I went, well, what do you think it was? And he goes, well, it wasn't a seal. I go, no. And he goes, well, it wasn't a dolphin. I go, no. And. I go, you know what it was. We never even said the word, you know, because, you know, it was heebie-jeebie time. And then we're, like, shaking our heads. And then the kid comes out, and, you know, he's wide-eyed. Did you guys see that thing? I go, no, what would you see? He goes, well, it wasn't a shark. I mean, it wasn't a a seal. Same deal. Yeah. So, I mean, this thing was big. It was big, fat, and thick. Right in the inside of the break, heading towards a deeper part of the cliffs that separates this one area from another. Um, Yeah, that thing was big in close proximity saw the 10 feet round as a a trash can at the beach but i mean they're out there you know paddling out i saw another one I, i saw this fin sticking out of the water it was so big i didn't believe it so i started paddling towards the fin going this can't be what i was thinking it was and i got close enough to go yeah that's exactly what it is and it was in the same proximity but just in the deeper area so i just paddled wide and hung around it um but I, I, I choose not to, to be that paranoid about them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a bear in the woods scenario. I mean, if it's my time to go, I'm going to get taken wherever I want to be taken. Yeah. But there's some big animals around. There's more now. I, I blame a lot of it on um, the seal population. Those clowns up in La Jolla that let the seals take over the, the children's beach. Yeah. There's always been seals there ever since I was a kid. But they'd be there six at a time, three at a time. They'd come, they'd go. As soon as they let them start to breed there, and now there's hundreds of them it's 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 a rookery, and sharks are going to naturally be attracted to that up and down the coast yeah and there's no re no need to protect seals no. they're not endangered there's no need to have that beach that was gifted to the the community of San Diego turn into a spawning ground for seals. They can go anywhere else they normally went, yeah, so I directly attribute that to more sharks in in San Diego
3: right. And, and, you know, the, as you know, the population here has doubled since, since 75. I think it was like 1.6 million in 75. It's 3.6 now. So 2 million more people. Um, so there's some that theorize, well, there's more people in the water, so there's more eyeballs in the water, so people are seeing more sharks. But it does seem as though within the last, say, 10 years, there's been a mass in sightings from, say, San Onofre down to this region.
2: Yeah, again, I think there's just an increase in population, I think, as we deplete the ocean of its natural resources or as sharks, you know, become more accustomed to the fact that there's other animals in the water. They want to taste them, they want to touch them, they want to feel them. Um, yeah, you're going to bring more in, you know. I also think the shark population has increased right along with the human population. Yeah. So that the chances of, of the two beating are going to be, uh, you know, definitely increased. Let's talk about surfboard
3: manufacturing.
2: Okay. <laughs> you ready for this, aren't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got some opinions.
3: Okay. Well, let me just start off by saying San Diego's got a solid base of board builders, as you know. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Nope. Um, here in San Diego, I mean, um, you know, Rusty, GNS, s Christensen's uh, Moonlight Shop, the Bing Shop, Sharpie, uh, Firewire up in Carlsbad, Chemistry, xtr joe roper's glass shop and i'm just naming a, a very short list here the list is long of of sort of luminaries and then of course there's individual handshapers like guys like you've already mentioned skip fry hank warner Stu kenson bill Menard, john Keyes, gary linden again the list is so long i can't sit here and list them all and i, and I apologize if i didn't mention you but we bird and i both know that all you know these guys are great um How would you describe the state of the surfboard building industry here in San Diego?
2: Uh, Despite what some people would would say about it, I I think it's relatively strong. We do have innovators. We do have Josh Halls. We do have Jeff McCallums. We do have uh, other guys, um, a young guy I'm working with, Dom, uh, that's from Afanita Surfboards, that are uh, struggling, um, not struggling, that are working really, really hard to preserve it. They understand the, the value of what it is to have hand-built surfboards and what it takes to do it, and that it costs more money to get them. Um, and then some other people have uh, given up on it, which is really sad. Some people have given up, and they don't want to change with the times. Um, they they look to blame uh, woes in the industries on, on other other companies and under other factors. Um And I can understand that to a certain extent because in in my lifetime, I've been involved pretty much in all aspects of surfing, from surfboard design to surfboard building. I've built plenty of boards. I'm not a shaper, but my whole life I've spent with people building boards. And uh, so I'm on both sides of it. I'm retailing them. I'm having them custom built and built along with everything else. So I look at it at a broader broader perspective of, of what's going on. And if you, if you open your mind up, if you look at the real picture of the surfboard and, and what the surfboard has become to a lot of people, then you need to pick your path on where you want to go with, with your, your idea as a, a surfboard builder, shaper, or a person who just wants to ride a surfboard. So there's validity to, to all things surf. There's areas that I, I suggest people stay away from. Um, But in the most part, I ask people to embrace different designs, different materials, different concepts, because you're missing a big chunk of surfing if you don't step out there and sample some of what's out there right now. Don't paint yourself into a corner.
3: Right. Well stated. Dennis Jarvis, out of the South Bay in Los Angeles, he's been on this podcast and we had a long talk about the surfboard industry and the American surfboard industry and the imported surfboard and the struggle of the American board builder and, and you know, what are the factors that are um, causing that struggle to occur, if, in fact, there is a struggle. But Dennis has called for tariffs to be put on imported surfboards. What do you think about imposing a tariff on
2: the, the imported surfboard? I'd be 100% for that, to be honest with you. I'd be, you know, anything that's going to affect the livelihood of of people who produce anything in America, if you have to equalize it a bit, make it uh, level the playing field, so to speak, a little bit, I would not be opposed, opposed to that. How much is going to be? Who's going to decide who pays what? Now you start to get political, and political gets ugly. But um, I, I spoke with
3: mm-hmm. Mark Price at Firewire yep. on this podcast about this, and and frankly, he's... And he suggested that, look if there 's a tariff imposed and it 's been this the case throughout every um, product that has had a duty or a tariff put on it, that the cost of that tariff gets imp- gets put on the end consumer and and frankly, that makes sense from a business standpoint like i wouldn 't blame somebody for for just pushing the cost of the tariff onto the end consumer so if there is a tariff, it would seem, and I'm just playing devil's advocate with you, Bird, but it would seem like I, me, Scott, the consumer, the end consumer, would be the guy that gets
2: screwed in the end. Uh, that's one way to look at it, you know, but again, as, as it has been done before, um, you look at the other side of things sometimes at if those guys are making more money, if they, if they choose to continue to want to make the margin that they're making and it negatively affects their sales... That's that's the choice they have to make. The choice they have to make. If they want to pass that on and race it to the consumer, and the consumer wants to pay for it, that's the choice that that consumer needs to make. From the local guys building them, the guys in the trenches, the sanders, the glassers, the laminators, everybody that I've grown up with, I would like to see those guys be able to make more money. I think they should make more money, but that's an internal struggle. That it, it, it's been that way since I was a kid. Nobody. Wants to step up in the production of surfboards, and and kind of tell it like it is. So I'll tell you what I think, um, if you want me to. Yeah. I, I think that you get back to the people that can get blanks right now, get them CNC, and seed. They can take them to the glass shops. They can get boards made, put their logo on them. They've never touched a planer in their life. They can promote boards, start a surfboard company with having absolutely nothing whatsoever do to have to do with surfboards and surfboard manufacture. those are the people that are taking the money out of the pockets of the people i know that that have built surfboards legitimately more so than some of the over the overseas companies most of the stuff that comes in from offshore is, is poorly made and it's poorly um poorly accepted and the stuff that is good and i'll, I'll mention firewire because i've been with them since before they were firewire um that's a different situation. Me as a retailer, if I cannot provide something for my customer that, that works as well as a firewire works in my opinion, then I'm not doing a service to my, my whole customer base. So I have to look at it, and it's a tough one, you know all my life, working with guys nothing but custom. you know, carrying boards as a surf shop just to make a higher margin. That goes against the grain of what the shed's about. I don't I do not do that. I don't go out looking for the least expensive surfboard that's out there so I can make my higher margin on it. I prefer to deal with local people or legitimate companies, which Firewire is to me, that are innovative, that are putting different materials, different ideas into the water, that are helping surfing progress through the, de- the design of it. And, um, yeah, it's going to hurt some people, but... The local manufacturers can do what they need to do to to strengthen that. Clamp down on the guys that are making blanks. Clamp down on the glass shop. Why would you want to send your boards to get glass to the factory that's going to glass 200 boards a month from 20 different guys that have nothing to do with the surf industry? Those guys aren't getting charged more for their glass jobs. They get charged the same as you or I would make as manufacturers. You know, it's just propagating garage boards that aren't garage boards anymore. And that was the big call when I was a kid. I mean, I remember having meetings with everybody, all the major manufacturers in the early 70s, about trying to clamp down on garage builders. You know, forget about Mitch. Stop getting them blanks. You know, all this stuff. We have to take a stand against these guys because they're taking away our sales. And they were. Garage guys were biting into the sales. Onesie-twosies. Yeah, onesie-twosies. Yeah. But now you've got 50 guys that are doing... Twosies, threesies, foursies. Twenties, you know, thirties off the CNC, off right? Off the That's CNC. Yeah. And they come out professionally. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, as much as I love those guys at CNC land or whatnot, you know, how much variance is there? I mean, there's one guy in particular who I'm not going to mention that has taken direct templates and put them right into use, varied them in the slightest way, and, yeah. and claims dominance on this stuff. Yeah, And and people will buy into it. Yeah, As a consumer, most surfers are, are very uneducated into the actual build of a surfboard and what goes into it. You yeah. know, there's there's still the blind sheep being being led by, you know, whatever. Social media hasn't necessarily helped that. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and there's a lot of, uh, of angst and animosity directed at people that I don't think it's fair to direct it at. Let, let's be positive about this. Let's look at it from, you know, creative angles and... Um, and don't so don't just cast the first stone, you know. So you're suggesting part of the problem is is
3: for the American-made board builders association, for lack of a better, for the American-made surfboard builders. Part of the problem is the American-made board builders that aren't that didn't cut their teeth and are now just seeing seeing machines, uh, boards, and and putting a logo on it and marketing it. Probably really well, so we're pointing the finger at the imported surfboard when we should be pointing the finger
2: kind of at ourselves. 100%. Again, it's it's always I've always seen it that way. And you know, people will will laugh and get pissed at me, and maybe they won't shop here or whatever. But if you look at the broad scope of it, go to the beach, look out there, look at the proportion of boards. As a retailer, I see everything coming in as trade-ins or whatever. I see so many more boards that are made locally here that look decent because they're CNC, they're off of a good glass company. I don't know who the logo is. The boards are going to work, but that's doing nothing but cannibalizing the legitimate surfboard builders. Right. Those guys can undercut anybody. They don't even care if they make a hundred bucks on a board because they really have no overhead. Yeah. You know. So yeah, like that's where the damage is really coming. For the amount of boards that some of the other offshore companies sell. Um, it, it's not as critical as people think. I know because I sell boards from all companies. I see how many firewires I sell. They're a the minority compared to the custom boards that I do with local shapers. So I see it. I mean, I know. I also see how many firewire boards are, are accepted and are out in the, the workplace, and that's they, you know, that's because they work. So you can't damn somebody for writing something that works. So you, I think you you more or less answered my next
3: question, which is: Do you think that San Diego is losing market share to imported surfboards, or are we gaining market share to imported surfboards? In other words, are you selling more imported surfboards out of Bird Surf Shed, or are you selling more American built boards, or are you seeing more imported surfboards on the beach? Where do you think we are with market share? Is it a fifty-fifty? Is it 40 You know, forty-sixty?
2: Well, it, it's uh, I still see the American-made product, and I have to include the guys that aren't legitimate, who I call aren't legitimate builders. I see that growing because I still see far more hand-built surfboards or CNC-built surfboards made in the U.S., made in San Diego, than I do see foreign boards. The the lousy China boards, um, bad bad surf shops, or I can't call them bad surf shops. Different surf shops that work on a margin basis only, they put those out. They usually don't service the customer as well as a customer really needs to be serviced. So, consequently, I'm hoping those same people will come to me or come to another legitimate surf shop, Encinitas, Surfy, Surfy. Somebody where, you know, the next time they want to get a board, they're going to want to get a board that has a a lot more credibility to it. And that will usually be a hand-done board. Even if you get a firewire, you know, you're still going to get boards that are done by your buddy. As many of those are right, I get more still built by my, my boys. Yeah. You know, so I don't see it as being as critical, but it's the people building boards without licenses that are building them for, for what they consider to be fun that's really tapping more into to people's, uh, you know, the people's living. And that's a tough one because the glass shops need to keep busy in order to, to be prosperous. They need to keep the sanders and everybody working And they'll say, well, if we don't do those boards, then, you know, we can't stay open to do the other guy's boards. Well, yeah, but you have to make a stand somewhere. You know, you have to decide where you want to be. And you can't throw rocks at an offshore company in particular because they're capitalized enough that they can put boards in a shop um, and and sell them that way. That's their business plan. It's limited, but that's their way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. and not take care of everything that's getting done in your backyard. You're just as guilty when you collect your $150 glass job or your $180 glass job from some guy, um, you know, who's built 50 boards in in the last year. Yeah. 50 times 100, you know, do the math. Yeah. That's what irritates me the most.
3: Interesting. There's a portion to – there's an aspect of this uh, equation, I guess you will, That was brought up to me recently by Chris Christensen, and I think it's interesting. It's the soft surfboard market. Um, The softboard has exploded in the last 10 years or so. Some suggest that this is a good thing as you get aspirational surfers coming in, buying soft surfboards. The thought being that they're going to then become enthusiast surfboards and, and upgrade to either an American built surfboard or maybe it's a firewire, but they will move from that softboard experience, that wavestorm experience, that INT experience to what you and I ride each and every day, you know, a pretty nice, really, you know, refined surfboard. Do you think that this is true? Do you think that this is happening? Do you think we're getting the aspirational to convert to enthusiast?
2: Uh, sadly, we're well past that point. It's it's gone. Like most things in life, it's yin and yang, and we're so far to the other side now that good surfers, guys that I know that rip, are riding soft boards. That that's the thing that scares me. I'm all about having guys go to Costco and get that hundred dollar board. Um, I'd rather they didn't have to get them from Costco. I'd rather they come in and buy um, soft surf boards from legitimate surf shops that give back to the surfing community, and uh, that that. Do cost more money so that when that person decides to step up to a a real handmade board he's not so shocked by the price difference but i'm about getting people in the water and for certain people i send them every day over to costco if i have to because that's where they need to be fresh off the boat they have never tried surfing before whatever you know what do i have to offer them yeah you know that's not gonna you know freak them out hurt them hit them or cost them four or five hundred bucks
3: but you're saying that but you're suggesting that we're not getting the conversion. We're not, are we getting that guy to come back in here and buy, um, you know, whatever it is that you're selling here on the racks here, you know? Um.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of those guys come back because they're newbies. They want to take it to the next level. They want to get better. They, you know, they don't want to be riding that little toy board. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, they're toys to me. Yeah. And uh, they want to get on a hard board. They want to be legit. They want to be players. It's all the guys that are jumping on those now that surf well, that chooses to surf softboards, that are mucking it up. You know, i got guys at Winnessy dropping in on softboards. I go out anywhere, and I've got a guy on a softboard who's just, he can surf. I I know. I've grown up with him. He surfs way better on a regular board. He chooses to ride the softboard for whatever reason. I can't fault him for that choice, but I sure don't have to give him a wave. (laughs) Know? i mean i know that. See, now i'm getting hostile again you know surfers I mean, are the worst I'm, tr- I'm trying not to get brutal like that but you know if somebody is is playing the game to their own advantage and taking away the fun from everybody um that's not right in my book that's yeah just my humble opinion yeah you know i mean everybody's everybody's ocean you can ride whatever you want blah 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 but um Whatever you do, you've got to be courteous.
3: It would be interesting to know what the conversion rate is like. If we are really getting those guys from Costco to eventually, you know, of the, let's say, 10 people going to Costco today, how many of those 10 in six months are coming in here and going, hey, I'm ready to up my game?
2: 2%.
3: Yeah, not very many. I don't no. think we're getting the conversion 2, that we should get. Yeah.
2: But that's 2%. You wouldn't get it all if they hadn't probably started on some kind of a board.
3: Well, they could if there was. I mean, this is sort of now we're kind of in fantasy land. But if there was no Costco to go to, they would have to come into here and get a board to start their experience as an aspirational surfer. Absolutely so you're true. losing that.
2: Yeah, you are. You are losing that.
3: And yeah. and yeah. the bummer about it's that, but well, the good thing is, is that at least at Costco, and you mentioned this, they're not going to get the customer service that they're going to get at Birds or at Hanson's or Encinitas or right. where any legit surf shop yeah. where you're going to go in and get that experience and. And and smell the resin and see the boards and fondle and and just get stoked. You know, you're just not going to get stoked at Costco.
2: But where do you draw the line, though? Like, you know, I love to fish, but I can't fish with a darn. So, you know, I I go to freaking wherever and buy a fishing pole. Yeah. Costco. Yeah. Well, yeah, if they had what I wanted. But, I mean, if it's an area that I'm not familiar with and I don't want to go any further than the dabble part, then I dabble. You know, if I'm serious on anything... You know, I'm serious about cars, so I'm different on cars. I'm different on surfboards because it's been my life. Things that are, you know, I don't take seriously. And a lot of people nowadays don't take surfing like you and I have grown up with. It's not a passion. It's it's a part of what they do. It's a sport. They're going to surf Saturday from 10 to 11 with their buddy, and then they're putting it away. And if golf is better that day or there's a game on, they don't care how good the surf is. So, you know, it's a whole different mentality that you're dealing with. I'm not saying either is right or wrong, but um, you have to factor that in when you're in the water. Yeah. And the biggest problem with that is that there is absolutely no education for these guys that are starting to surf. You go to Costco, you get a board, you jump in the water. There's no instructions. You know, you go to a surf school around here. I I have problems with those because they're basically babysitting. They're not teaching about anything. They put you in the water the first day, you know, instead of talking to you about currents courtesies, everything else that you need to know before you enter the water. You don't go to the local, you know, basketball court and jump in with the brothers and the boys just, you know, because you got a new basketball from up the street. You don't go fishing and go next to the guy, the old man of the sea, and sit in his fishing hole. You know, there's a whole bunch of things. You don't get a car and jump on the freeway. You know, so there are steps to doing anything in life um, that, that should be followed, and the respect needs to be followed with that. We hold that responsibility as competent surfers ourselves to educate these people, not bark at them, not kick them out, not call them goons, not flatten their tires, cut their cords. You know, we need to mature and let them know that, hey, you know, what you just did is not tolerable. You don't throw your surfboard every time. You know, we need to be educators um, and and not saboteurs. Otherwise, you're going to create animosity. Yeah. And uh, surfing should be anything but that. Yeah fine
3: line well the fact of the matter is is that anytime i try to be a mature elder statesman it ruins my session i don't enjoy i don't that's not why i went surfing i didn't go surfing to educate the kook over there no that's not why i'm here you know and i, I don't really and i'm just going to let it slide and i'm just going to go whatever and I, selfishly i'm just going to paddle out with a smile and de- and you know that's not do selfish. my own thing.
2: That, that's just a different, diff, different way of doing it. Everybody has their own, their own approach. For me, maybe because I'm in retail, if I if I find somebody who's paddling wrong and their legs are split and their nose is sticking up out of the water, I got no problems telling them, hey, you know what? Put your feet together, place yourself on the board like this, and then go on the inside and catch the whitewater. You know, I mean, for me, I would. For me, I would rather do that you know not every single time but if possible that's what i would rather do yeah you know um as as opposed to have that guy chuck his board and land on my head on the outside and then i get mad and then the, the worst of me comes out yeah and i usually can feel better about the end of the day going in and going you know what i just watched that guy actually do what i asked him to do or told suggested that he did and now he's standing up or that girl you know so that's a a different positive side yeah i I want people to enjoy it as much as you and i enjoy it you know i mean i I can't be selfish like that or i'd be like one of those guys at the cliffs that i used to be walking by people and and sneering at people or not looking at anybody and and wishing you know that i didn't have to look at them at all yeah you know um i don't know i'm I'm 61 i'm getting older maybe i'm getting mellower i don't know i just look at things more differently yeah i'm the same
3: way. I'm, I think we're in this, we're starting to,
2: I, I hate to say it because we're so
3: old, but we're starting to mature. <laughs> yeah, I know,
2: 61, we're starting to mature while. there, Scott. We're, just, we're starting to ripen a little bit. But what about my grandkids? What about my kids and their kids? You know, what, what is the surfing experience going to be like for them if there isn't some kind of educa- educational process set up there? You go on YouTube and you look at how they teach you to surf. It's totally backwards. They're telling you to push up on your board with your hands instead of grabbing the rail. They're telling you to do pop-ups where you literally jump in the air and land on your feet on your board. What, are you a monkey? You know, I mean, you you have to maintain contact on your surfboard. You know, the more you're pushing it away from you, I mean, basic things like that, that every person that comes in, I have to go over that with them and ask them, well, who taught you what and, and why? And then I explain to them, this is the technique that i use and this is the technique i was taught 50 some years ago and you think about what what you're doing and what you just showed me you're doing and then you decide what makes sense but there's so much misinformation out there that um somewhere you know we have to make a stand and start trying to correct things or it's going to go it's going to just get ugly
3: you mentioned some names earlier um josh hall jeff mccallum yeah you could throw Ryan Birch, of course, in there. You bet. A young Encinitas kid named Zach Flores. Yeah, seems like and, and Dom, your friend Dom from Encinitas, absolutely. Surfboard. you mentioned we've mentioned some guys. It seems like, um, and there's a lot more guys too. What's funny is that I look at San Diego surfboard builders and I think of like Rob and Prodonovich and Skip Fry and Hank Warner. These guys are all getting pretty old yeah and so when you think about the next level guys you think of like Kevin Connolly and the guys we just mentioned and a bunch of other guys they're all like 45 years old now they seem like they're 25 because yeah. that's how we kind of know them absolutely and it's weird to call them the young guard but I look at them and I go "Oh yeah that's the, those are the young guys and they're 40 years old
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here us in conversation with business icons This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business.
1: Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
0: didn't want to do another stomp-you-out speech. It opened up so
1: many more doors. The show
0: is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
2: Well, they're the most important guys because those are the guys that are still hand-built guys, right? The guys that, who's going to take their place? Those guys make a lot of money on their surfboards. They charge three, four times as much as Hankey will get for a shape or Robin Prodinovich will get for a shape. Part of that is through their marketing, marketing. Part of it is through the quality of the boards they put out. Um, and part of it is because there are people that are always looking for a higher a higher item, thinking that yeah. more is better. Yeah. I'm more worried about the low end. You know, where is the entry-level shaper going to fall in? You know, what about, you know, I don't want it to get taken over by guys that just, Anybody goes on the computer and they make their own boards. No more shaping anymore. You go on, you punch it in, you send it into the computer. That guy sends it to the glass shop. You go directly to the glass shop and you pick up a board. You're, you're self-designing or self-building your own boards. Yeah. That is what scares me. Because if you don't have information on what you need, you're, you're speculating off of reading what people are telling you you need. You don't have contact directly with a shaper and a glasser to know what's going on into the surfboard. Then a whole lot of people are going to be riding awful bad equipment and um my job as a surfboard salesperson in a surfboard shop will eventually dwindle um and uh and surfing will you know will regress and things of that nature so it's you know, key to have shapers still shaping well absolutely and, and and listening to you just now
3: made me think about you know did those did those older era surfboard builders from, and when I say older, for me, that I'm thinking back when I was a kid, like mid eighties, it was scary ordering a surfboard. Like, did they almost do themselves in, like, it was scary to go to diamond glassing and order a surfboard. It was scary to go up on the hill at Shannon and knock on the door and have Jack Jensen open the door and go, and be 15 years old and go, Hey, I'd like to get a board. Like, wouldn't it have been better if they back then had the foresight to be more like, Hey, more, more, more inclusive
2: rather than kind of salty and snickering. Well, sure, but you can look at that as a business model for, for anybody in any business, even outside of surfing. If you have the attitude that, you know, that you're the man and, you know, you have no competition, yeah, then you call the plays as you see it, you know, and you live and die by the, the way you treat people. Yeah. So, yeah, there's plenty of manufacturers that are no longer in production now that if they would have changed their business plan, if they would have addressed the situations, and all these things we're talking about were talked about through those years all through the 80s you know when when people were were surfing was giant and surfboard labels were popping up all over the place even though they were still made in America there were still labels with no backbone there was no history there was nothing behind them yeah. you know um that didn't really do surfing a whole lot of good for a lot of the manufacturers other than the glass shops yeah. i don't want to keep pointing fingers at the glass shops because they are they are the men in the trenches but um if if you don't glass people's boards then those boards don't go out. Yeah. So um you know, you, you glass a board, throw any label on there. I would think that you would wanna know that that, that person is supporting the whole surf industry, not not just themselves or just you. And yeah, it's a dog it's a dog consumer, eat dog world. As an end consumer though, Bert, if I mean to play devil's advocate if I'm
3: Joe Schmo guy on the street and and I, and I see some guy on the beach, he's like, yeah, I'll make you board. It's 350 bucks, And to go get a new Channon at the time is 400 bucks. Well, all right, I'm just kind of a kooky enthusiast, or aspirational surfer, and I'd like this Joe Blow guy here to make me board for cheaper. You know, you, you can't – I mean, it's hard to point the finger at the glass shop. I know you're saying that's where you're going to draw the line. I get it. But the end consumer kind of is like, well – Look, I don't know the difference. I can't even. T- I can barely. You know, I, I can barely do a bottom turn. I don't really know the difference between the three hundred and fifty dollar board and the four hundred and fifty dollar board, other than the logo, which is what you're saying is important because there's all this history behind it. There's all this legacy behind it. These are the guys that know what they're doing. This is the fabric of the surfboard industry. But the end consumer guy doesn't really care. Like he's just like whatever. You know, I saved a hundred bucks. Okay, well See then, the water.
2: Then pointing the finger back at myself and other surfboard retailers. And I don't want to be known as the guy pointing the finger at the glass shop. You know, I mean, they are the most important person. I mean, shapers are great, but nobody the glass and glass proper, then you know your your shape isn't going to come out right. But I believe, like everybody, they, there is a bit of responsibility that these guys can shoulder to help to help control the marketing. But it really suffered as surf shops got into boutique-y things. And the surfboard doesn't matter. You go into most so-called surf shops now, there's 20 boards. There's no margin on surfboards now like there wasn't then. You know, it's all on the soft goods and so forth. But we've all watched how that has crumbled over the last five or six years, how it's been cannibalized. So my theory on opening up the surf shed was to go back to my select days to provide the information, to provide uh, the equipment to people where... um, they could try it from a, a more base way, you know, not not such a uh, such a kind of fluff and stuff way. I mean, there's a million stores shop online, do whatever you want. But if you really want to seek it out, there are places out there you can do that. And um, surf shop should take responsibility in that as well. You know, for years and years, I tried to start a foundation. Um, I got shut down by a former partner years ago. I wanted to call it uh, Veterans Surfboards um, Foundation. Where, I remember. Uh, you and I yeah, were... Yeah, we spoke about yeah. that. I wanted to have you on the board, whatever. Yeah. But because of other conflicts, I could not fulfill it. But at that time, the companies were up and strong. I go, hey, we should all seed this foundation. Most shapers and, and glassers, especially, they don't have insurance. They have nothing. But if we were to have seeded it, put some money in from the big companies, small shops... Donate a board every month, sell that board, put that money in this fund, have a good board of people that are trustworthy to help support these veteran surfboard guys. That's something that we could have done. That was a proactive thing that should have gotten taken care of. I think Royce and some of those guys are still uh, trying to work towards that end up in Orange County. I think Vistula might have a hand with it. I know Royce is active in something like that. I know they did help out Terry Martin and his family when he passed away. But, yeah. I mean, that should have been done um, and it should be done on a more consistent basis. We need to take care, care of our own, yeah. you know. Surfing is meant to be roguey kind of and in, in, in kind, of, kind of floating out there for most people, you know. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, you know, I mean, you, you, still have, you still have to water your garden. You still have to tend to your, tend to your passion. You know, you can't just go, hey, it's going to be there, you know, tomorrow when I wake up to go out because it very well might, might not be. So yeah. it's uh, everybody. We're all responsible for trying to to look at this situation, consumers included. You know they can look at it. You know the same as environmentally friendly wetsuits or whatever. I mean I look at people now that come to me at least because maybe I'm one of the last guys standing that are more concerned about what boards they want to ride. They come in because they've had this, they've had that, they've had seven or eight hundred dollar boards that don't work for them any better than some of the local boards that my boys shape. Um, because there's extremely competent shapers that you don't have the overhead. You don't have to charge that higher, the higher amount. You know, there's legitimacy for that as well. Yeah. By the same token, those guys that are at the forefront of design, Channel Islands, Rusty, some of the bigger boys, you know, Lost, Biolist, all those cats and many, many more above them, Doc, Doc Louch. Those guys are continually putting their money where their mouth is in terms of designing stuff too. So you have to support both camps. But there's a lot of different camps out there, and you don't have to eat at the same restaurant every time. Yeah. Maybe get American, then maybe get a board from your your local guy. Yeah. You know, maybe get your Channel Islands. You know, because you want to Rob Machado go fish. But you know, then you got your your lost. You know, hyperdrive or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it's all good. You know, um,
3: you mentioned the price of a surfboard, and and I don't know if you listened to the podcast with Mark Price, but he's really big on. Um, getting the retail the price point uh high and keeping it high and so i mean firewire is retail for like 750 bucks more or less maybe maybe 50 bucks more or something like that i don't know the exact no you're right there but the point is is that that's a pretty good number that should be reached or should be you know try to try to reach that number anyway by the guys that are building boards here in america it seems to me that as soon as we get consumers comfortable and understanding that, hey, 800 bucks is still cheap for a killer surfboard, then, uh, you know, the cream, everyone sort of floats. The, the pond gets a little bit bigger and everyone floats a little higher
2: in the water. Yeah, but now we're going backwards again because of all those guys that do the C&Cs and all the guys that get them glass, they're beautiful boards. That's the, the new, new garage. Yeah, that's the new garage. Nightmare. Except for they're putting out stuff that's perfect. And you know? there's 50 of them instead of one of them. Exactly. You know, I mean, a guy in his garage is going to build two or three because he's doing everything himself. And I don't care how good a shaper you are, you're not that good of a glasser. Or how good a glasser you are, you're probably not that good of a shaper. Yeah. That's a rare commodity. So what they put out, it was rideable. But how long it would last, how it rode, that was a big concern. When you no. can get it all mechanized right now and, and literally, you know, get it 90% shaped on CNC and scrub it yourself or have somebody else scrub it and get it glassed by the same guy who's glassing all the high-end boards that you're used to paying your six to fifty-four, that's where the you know, inequality is. And that's another thing on foreign surfboards. It's not like, you know, uh, firewires are, are selling boards like cheap. You know, I mean, they're expensive. You want to buy a FireWire, you're buying into it. They might be making more money on it because of how they have it priced. Right. You can't fault them for that because that's a business decision. Yeah, they they
3: floated millions of dollars in capital. Yeah,
2: but that's their business model. But they're not undercutting the local manufacturers. And around here, for the most part, prices are are pretty current. You know, you can get a a decent, well-made, professionally built surfboard. Yeah. Most local shops around here for high fours to low fives. You step up the ladder to a Rusty or Channel Islands for like a hundred bucks more. You step up to a, a Firewire for a hundred bucks after that, and that's kind of you know where where it lies at least out of out of my shop.
3: Yeah, the price to value ratio is what Mark Price calls it, and yeah. it's an interesting concept. And I think it w- I do know that if we could get everyone to agree—not agree—we're never going to get everyone to agree, nope. but but Tried get everyone it. to kind of reach for the seven hundred and fifty-eight hundred dollar model. And I think that we might be moving that way. For instance, I was in Hanson's the other day, and um, uh, Larry Mobile, M- Mabel, yeah. um Third World Exotic, yeah. killer boards, 750 bucks. Like, all the really nice yeah. high-end, four-fin, like... Mitzvins, su- same yeah, thing. Yeah, Mitzvins, exactly. Those right. guys are all making that number, and I hope that they're moving... I think they're moving those boards out of there. And, and so, the, you know... This is a good thing. I see this as a really good thing. You know, I granted there's going to be the CNC four hundred and fifty dollar yeah. clear poly trifin, you know, that's kind of just whatever. Yeah, you know? like there's always going to be a price point board, but I do sense that we are moving into that sort of that number that that that
2: mark was mentioning well there's going to be a surfboard connoisseur as always you know there's going to be the guy that that will pay for the quality will pay for the hand done job and those guys like you said it's 750 that's that's a deal i agree for for what they're they are getting you know um but you know those guys are small I mean, you know, and we're not talking big factories now, yeah. right? You're talking guys that... that um, 20 can, boards a week. Yeah, at most. Yeah. They can exist off of, of less money because they have a low lower overhead of life or whatnot. Yeah. It's when you've created a monster, a big company, you know, where you're counting on doing hundreds of boards a week and that starts tapering off. How do you keep that monster afloat? You know, um, yeah. you, you have to be competitive. Those guys build by numbers. Those same big giant manufacturers are the guys that have their... I'd call them parking lot sales, and you go up there and buy a brand new board for three hundred ninety-five bucks because it's been sitting in their inventory for a year or two. Yeah, that just does nothing but to cannibalize their own label, and the, the price of surfboards in general. Yeah, but what are you supposed to do? Catch twenty-two.
3: Yeah, because get we...
2: smaller, limit your production, cut your overhead. That's what all major companies have had to do in in the world if they want to survive in the current economic situation. Yeah, you cut your overhead. And you know, you you build less and maybe make more on what you what you build, and still building more and making less. But people are going to lose jobs doing that. Yeah. You know, people are going to lose work doing that. It could come back by people buying more expensive boards, so then everybody's prices get elevated, or people deciding that you know what, it, it's it's better to get educated. It's better to buy a a real made board, and then they start selling more of those boards that's my hope my hope is that the hand-built surfboard as you mentioned might you know find its way right back to where it should be you know number one with a bullet and everybody's going to be looking for that and if you don't have a board that has some heart and soul into it then um you know at least some of your boards then uh you know you're 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 missing out on that too you know well bird we've
3: We've covered a lot here in this yeah. time together. What's next? What have I missed? Did I tell you that we're, we're honoring Wayne Lynch this year at the Oh. 2019 Boardroom International Surf Disc. Nobody Church. better than Wayne. Wayne Lynch, Icons
2: of Foam tribute. I cannot wait for that Super one. Super
3: excited. I'm so excited.
2: I just want to touch on one more thing before I, I let you guys go. Yeah. Um, the reason I got into working at, at a surf shop was because I don't surf well, I never have, never will. I just love that's it. That's not true. Uh, no, it's true. Um, I always wanted to have good equipment. Coming from you know a family with eight brothers and sisters, hand-me-downs, the only way I could ever figure on getting good equipment is working at a shop where I could, could put myself in a position of being able to get good surfboards. I've never shaped boards uh, myself because I don't want to ride something that wasn't the best. So um, that's the way I've always approached it, and that's the way I, I continue to perceive doing it, is giving the customer whatever is best for that customer. That's my job as a, as a surf salesperson uh, mainly is to make sure that whoever is going to go surfing, whoever walks out, to out this door with a board is getting something that's going to make their surf experience better and help them progress. And if it has to be, um, you know, to the point where I don't have it, I'll call Mitch. I'll call Surfy, Surfy. I'll call somebody who I can trust. I'll call Ensenia Surfboards, and I'll steer people those guys' way because I know that if I don't have it, there's somebody out there that still has it. I'm not the only you know, only guy doing this, you know, yeah. but um, there's not a lot of us left. So for all the independents that are out there that are still doing it, Surfy, Surfy was a major inspiration to me. Um, yeah, thank you, guys. Let's hold the line, and everybody who's a board builder out there, Hope you don't hate me. I'm just speaking from my heart and my soul. Guys at Moonlight, you know, and everybody else that I know, um, you know, God bless you. I love you all. Thank you, Bird. Look out, Mama.
1: There's a white boat.
3: I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Bird Huffman, and I do know that um, sometimes struggling with the audio quality, do understand that I'm recording a lot of this stuff, well, all of it, on the road. Sometimes I'm dealing with more than just levels, but microphones that are moving and unfortunately background noise occasionally, but we're attempting to get better at this. I also want to reach out to any potential sponsors. The Boardroom Podcast is looking for sponsors actively. So if you'd like to be a part of this podcast, um, reach out scott at boardroomshow.com and we can begin those discussions. And regarding the Boardroom Show coming up May 4th and 5th, 2019 in Del Mar, we're very pleased to announce that Wayne Lynch will be this year's honoree at the Icons of Foam Tribute to the Masters, presented by U.S. Blanks. So when we'll be in town, all weekend long for that, and we'll have quite a celebration of the surfboard, as we always do at the Boardroom Show. Follow us on Twitter, Boardroom Surf, Instagram, Boardroom Show, and of course, check out the website, BoardroomShow.com. Thanks for listening.